Welcome to Times Like These, the American Purpose podcast about current events and current ideas and the search for a new political center. I'm your host, Charles Lane of The Washington Post. Our guest today is Michael J. Abramowitz, president of Freedom House. Freedom House is probably one of the most distinguished names in the field of human rights and democracy promotion among non-governmental organizations. Its origins stretch all the way back to the months just preceding the U.S. uh, entry into World War II, October 1941, when its initial co-chairs were Republican Wendell Wilkie and Democrat Eleanor Roosevelt, a bipartisan tradition that it's tried to maintain, I think has maintained ever since. Mike himself uh, has had a remarkable career, both as a journalist for many years here at uh, the Washington Post, where I work, And prior to joining Freedom House in 2017 uh, as director of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum's Levine Institute for Holocaust Education. And Mike is somebody who's thought deeply about all the issues that really concern us on this podcast, the role of uh, the rule of law, the role of individual rights, the role of democracy in our future. And I'm very delighted, Mike, that you agreed to come on the podcast. Welcome. Um, Really great to be with you, Chuck. Thanks for having me. So I I actually did want to start very quickly asking you to reflect on the origins of Freedom House for a moment before we get to our contemporary stuff. It It is kind of an unusual group in the sense that it does go back that far, number one. And number two, importantly, in our current political environment, it is bipartisan by design and and sort of insists on that. Talk for a moment about the role of that bipartisan tradition. Sure. Well, I'm very inspired by the founding story of Freedom House, which you essentially gave the key details. You know, this is an organization that came together uh, in 1941 with prominent Republicans, Democrats, and independents to really fight to really urge America into the war against fascism. At the time, there was a great deal of isolationism in our country. I'm always struck by the fact that nine out of 10 Americans before Pearl Harbor wanted the United States to stay out of the European war. And Freedom House really argued for a very principled and aggressive U.S. support for democracy around the world and at home. And you're right that our tradition I, I, I like to say nonpartisan, actually, because we are deeply nonpartisan, but we try to work across the aisle to advance our objectives and our ideals. And I think that's very powerful and kind of a different approach than many organizations today. We still try hard to keep that sense of nonpartisanship. It's 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 a challenge in the current environment, but I I, I do believe we're we're, we're, we're achieving that. Well, another element of the tradition and history of Freedom House that uh, is very salient was the role of the institution during the Cold War, during which I would think it's fair to say Freedom House was particularly outspoken in behalf of human rights in the Soviet bloc um, and really championed the cause of the Soviet dissidents, the dissidents in Eastern Europe. And, uh, you know, that sort of brings me in a way to the next topic I wanted to talk about with you, which is, if I'm not wrong, Mike, you guys are charged with 
producing an annual report on the state of democracy and liberty in the uh, former Soviet, uh, I guess you'd call it former Soviet bloc. Uh, I think the report's called Nations in Transit. Do I have that right? That's right. Well, there are actually two reports. Uh, actually, we have many more reports than those, but but we, we do have a report that's done for the last 20 years or so about the state of democracy in the former Soviet bloc. But, but I do think the more significant report, all our reports are significant, but I think the one that probably has the most traction globally is freedom in the world, which we've been doing for right. close to 50 years. And that really tracks right. the level of freedom all over the world. I should have mentioned that, obviously, and that has the famous sort of uh, tripartite designation, free, partly free, not free, uh, and was, a, you know, a real uh, is sort of a standard setter during the Cold War uh, and a real source of, I think, you know, kind of blunt truth. Well, it's, you know, it's interesting, Chuck, if I may, you know, the, the, the project was kind of conceived and created during a particularly bad period of the Cold War, you know, the early 1970s, we were kind of, the United States was kind of on its back feet as a result of Vietnam and uh, the Soviet bloc uh, seemed to be strong. Of course, it was more brittle than it appeared. And the people at Freedom House basically wanted to have an annual survey that basically focused public attention on this issue of democracy and human rights. It didn't really, there, we have competition now, but at the time it didn't really, uh, competition didn't really exist. And, and so Freedom House really put on the map through that report, the cause of freedom, democracy, human rights. So I'm glad we've done that. We've reviewed that that report is a, a, an annual and I look forward to it because I'm interested in those issues. I think I'm not the only one. But I did want to just drill down into the Nations in sure. Transit report in particular, because as I understand it, that one's relatively fresh as we're sitting here speaking in mid-May. And also because it does, for me, crystallize something I think we all need to really reflect on, which is kind of the, uh, I think we have to be honest about it, the the disappointed expectations of 1989, right? That That a lot of developments we thought in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union that were irreversible in the direction of uh, uh, liberalism and democracy have have not proven to be irreversible. And you're documenting that in your report. I'd like just to get you to reflect a little bit on that data and that trend. Sure. No, no, absolutely. And I think you, you said it well, Chuck. You know, 1989, the Berlin Wall fell. A year later, the Soviet empire collapsed. And I think it really felt to many of us and to many of those in the international and human rights community that uh, freedom was on the ascendancy and democracy was on the ascendancy. And what's happened over the last 10 to 15 years is that the gains that have been, that were secured in the early years of, of after the Berlin Wall's fall have, have been reversed. And certainly the biggest story is that uh, Russia, which had been moving in a more open democratic direction in the, say, the 10 years after it had become liberated, if you will, from the Soviet Union, that started to turn around under, under President Putin, who really imposed gradually and progressively much more serious controls and, and really repression in, in, in Russian society. And then, you know, in recent years with his 
overseas adventures in places like Georgia and now Ukraine. So what do you think we got wrong in, in those, in those Ber- heady days when the Berlin Wall fell? Um, because, and just parenthetically, one of the things that struck me in reviewing the latest Nations in Transit is the sort of zigzag nature, actually, of democratic progress in certain um, Eastern European countries. I'm thinking of, you know, Hungary is a good one. They sort of become democratic. They backslide. Some actually improve after backsliding. Albania seems to be one of those cases. What do you think in, in I mean, it's a very hard question, but what, what was the misconception that we had in the West that didn't prepare us for this kind of outcome? It's a very good question, and I want to be a bit humble in answering that. But I certainly think we probably underestimated, many of us, I'm not saying everybody, but I think many of us may have underestimated the kind of revanchist spirit inside Russia and and really the feeling among many, but it's kind of captured by by Vladimir Putin that that Russia was was really humiliated by the end of the Cold War that needed to be corrected. And I also think more generally that we underestimate the idea that democracy is something that has to be kind of struggled over constantly. I like what you said, Chuck, the idea that uh, it's kind of moves in zigzags. I, I you know, I, I always feel I describe it as moving in, you know, two steps forward, one step back. You, you know, it's, there's not an end state that's perfect, but you're trying to get to be more perfection. And, and in fact, you know, according to our you know, we rate countries on a scale of zero to 100. So that really, by the very nature of our ratings, suggests that no one is perfect and that you're moving in, you're hopefully moving in a good direction. Uh, but but I do think we kind of underestimated and maybe perhaps we're complacent about the fact that you really need to fight for democracy. So actually, you just, I was going to move on to a different subject, but the thing you just said about the ratings from zero to 100 prompted me to stick in this question, which is, Tell us a little bit about the methodology. I mean, you know, it reminds me a little bit about how U.S. News rates the, the colleges. And, and uh, these numbers, of course, while they're instructive and illustrative and they contain some information, there's a certain degree of, uh, you know, inevitably discretion and maybe even arbitrary choice involved in a rating like that. Tell us briefly, like, how you guys uh, do the inputs on these ratings. Sure. Well, the, well Freedom House scores are basically an evaluation of political rights and uh, civil liberties. And so we look at a variety of different indicators in both those broad categories of, uh, of, of measurements uh, and you know, things like free and fair elections, uh, the rule of law, transparency, uh, freedom of speech. Uh, there, are, there are actually 24 different indicators that we look at and, and sub-questions for each of those indicators. Uh, and, and this has been fairly consistent over the last almost 50 years. I mean, we've, we've refined the methodology, but it's basically been the same for 50 years, which I think is what gives it its great power. And what we do is we, for each country in the world, we ask a country expert every year to take a look and see how things have changed from the previous year. And then those that person's assessment is then reviewed by regional and then global experts and by the Freedom House staff. And that kind of essentially results in, in, in the final scores of the index. The, the, the scores hold up pretty well over time, and they're consistent with, with other people who, sc- who score these things, you know, like The Economist or, 
or other groups that have started their own democracy rating projects. Uh, but I think that the, the real strength of the Freedom House scores is the fact that we've been doing it over a long period of time and not just going back in time and looking to see, projecting what it could have been, what we think it should have been, but actually they are the real-time assessments of people looking at freedom at that time. And that that gives a strength, to, to, that, that gives you the overall global picture of how things change over time. So again, back to our our starting point, which was 1941. You know, it was, uh, it, it is, I guess, perhaps to some people, a rather bold thing for Americans to do to sort of presume to pass judgment on the political systems of others. But of course, the period that began in 1941 was a period we now know in which the United States is a moral authority to do such things was, you know, largely accepted in because of the strength of our own domestic institutions and our own democracy and the rule of law here. And needless to say, the last few years have been humility inducing in that respect. We've had a near insurrection at the U.S. Capitol and a whole bunch of other very troubling trends and tendencies here that I don't need to remind you of in detail. But I would like you to talk a little bit about how that has changed, how the the realization that Maybe even democracy isn't a permanent state in the United States has affected how Freedom House approaches its work. It's a great question. It's one I get all the time, and it's one that is profoundly challenging. First of all, freedom in the world started in 1973. We did not start it like when Freedom House began. Uh, so it's, it's 50 years old, not 80 years old. I will say, though, if you look at the general trajectory history of Freedom House over 80 years. One thing that I think that many people are not really familiar with is they think of us often as a, and properly so, as a global democracy organization, you know, that mainly concerns ourselves with the state of democracy in places like Russia, Turkey, Venezuela, etc. I think what's interesting to me as a president of the organization is that if you look at our history, we've also been very concerned about the health of global I'm sorry, but the whole health of U.S. democracy and that we really have always seen a connection between the health of U.S. democracy and the health of global democracy. We do not only throw stones or cast our fingers at other countries. We also look at the United States. So every year there is a chapter about the health of democracy in the United States to go along with the chapters uh, on the other countries that we that we that we look at. We do get this criticism that we're kind of like a U.S.-based institution. To, to some extent, we're guilty of that. We are U.S.-based, but we do v- try very hard to take a global perspective. So, Mike, as you look at U.S. democracy, now I'm going to try and, you know, what do you think it's going to take to repair some of the damage here? Do you think it is repairable? And maybe I'll ask it in the sense of as you look around the other cases that Free- Freedom House studies around the world, what what case maybe resembles our predicament the most? What has the most lessons in it for us? Because, because really, it, you know, independently of whether anybody outside of our borders regards us as a legitimate arbiter of what's democratic or not, it's it ultimately in some ways less important as to whether or not, you know, we are democratic. And uh, this is a very uh, fraught period. Well, one thing, Chuck, that I always remind people of is that the United States is still a free country. We are, in Freedom House parlance, we're uh, 
uh, one of the green countries, which is how we color code the free countries on the global map. And we have a lot that's great about our country, uh, very robust protections for free speech, a strong rule of law tradition, generally well-run elections. So I think there's a lot to be proud of with U.S. democracy. But there's no question that over the last 10 to 12 years, and I say this not from a partisan point of view, because I think we've, we've experienced score declines in the United States that have happened in administrations of, of both parties, Republicans and Democrats. But I think there's no doubt there's been uh, an erosion. You know, I, I think the United States, the way I see it, the United States is not immune from the issues that have happened in other countries. You know, the failure of, uh, you know, the governing elites to really respond effectively to the concerns of the, of the working class. Uh, you know, that's a global phenomenon. Uh, some of the problems in our democracy, uh, you know, the extreme gerrymandering and the polarization is uh, present in a lot of other democracies. I would say the thing that does give me hope, though, is that the United States does have a very strong tradition of resilience. I mean, I mean honestly, if you look at, back at our history, and I'm thinking about the 1930s or even the period before the Civil War, we've had it a lot worse. And yet our democracy has recovered and gone forward. There's a certain vitality. So we have our problems, but I think we need to kind of put it in some context. I say this completely in jest, but there is a part of me that wishes the old Soviet Union and the communist bloc were still there uh, to remind people of, you know, kind of how bad it can really be. Um, of course, there are plenty of other examples. Uh, we'll get to uh, one particular in, in, in a moment. But I think one of the things that refugees do in the United States is constantly refresh the pool of people in our communities who have personal reflection and memory of living under dictatorship and totalitarianism. No, I totally agree with you. And by the way, I do think that we are going into a situation in Russia where, you know, according to people who are much smarter about Russia than me, but the human rights and, and freedom situation in Russia is very dim right now. And it's, it's getting close, I think, to what, you know, some people say it's getting close to what it was like during the Soviet period in terms of the uh, repression, the restrictions on the press, uh, the inability to kind of say, say what you, what you, what you want to say. It's, 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 it's very, very bad. You know, one of the kind of silver linings, and there's not a lot of silver linings that have come out of the Ukraine invasion, but I do think it is reminding people there are bad people in the world who really want to, by force, take away people's freedoms and democracy. And, and we are being given a real reminder of that right now. Well, we're also getting a reminder of the fact that there are, to use the term, good people who are standing up to it uh, and who need support. Um, I think we are also, and again, I keep harping on that 1941 history, but I think it is so relevant, really. The stirrings of America first uh, are very strong here. I mean, you know, you had a whole presidency under that slogan. And as I'm talking to you now, there's a lot of pushback in Congress from people who say, you know, why do we have to send tens of billions of dollars to help Ukraine? Why is that any of our business? That never seems to go away. And so I think one of the useful and, and, and healthy 
consequences of a kind of infusion of of people fleeing those kinds of societies is to push back against that notion that this has no, you know, nothing to do with us. Right. One of the things that you really realize when you work at a place like the Holocaust Museum in particular is <laughs> how there's nothing really new under the sun. You know, Putin, I, I'm very, I'm very hesitant to make Hitler analogies. They tend to be really bad, but it hasn't been really for 80 years since you've had someone who just by force has tried to redraw the map of Europe. Uh, and so I think history, I think there's a lot of continuity here. And what you pointed out, I, I've, I've been struck about Freedom House since taking over five years ago, which is that, you know, isolationism has been a predominant strain in American politics and it's kind of waxed and waned over years. But what we're going through right now is not particularly a new thing from the point of view of America. And just remember, we have the leading Senate candidate uh, in uh, in Ohio, who I think I'm quoting him correctly, Chuck, who has said he doesn't give doesn't care about what happens in Ukraine, which is a profoundly wrong position to be. I, I think you're you're not quite quoting him correctly because I think it was a little more profane than what you said. Yeah. Yes, I think you got the gist. Yeah. Um, well, we've talked a lot about communism, totalitarianism, and and some of it, at least on my side of the conversation, has implied that there is, you know, communism died or something in 1989, but obviously that isn't true. In fact, in 1989, there was a communist regime, the one in Beijing, that actually suppressed a freedom movement and has gone on uh, to uh, consolidate and strengthen and in recent years become an even harsher uh, version of itself than it was probably in the 80s and 90s. Uh, tell us a little bit about what Freedom House is looking at and working on right now in, in China. Well, I think China really presents one of the most significant challenges, if not the most significant challenge to freedom in the world for the next 30 or 40 years. Uh, I'm very struck, and I frequently quote the following statistic. Ten years ago, roughly when President Xi took office in China, China scored at about 17 on a scale of 100, which is really poor in our scores. But at the time, China was seen to be a, com a country that might be liberalizing. It had joined the previous decade, the, the World Trade Organization. Uh, there was more and more investment from uh, international companies in China. Uh, it seemed as if the Chinese people might be enjoying some more freedoms. And that kind of really changed under President Xi. So one of the stories of China that I think is not commonly recognized outside of China, or certainly in our country, is that the, is that the country has gotten more repressive. And according to Freedom of the World, in our last report in February, China scored only nine. So it's so it declined from a very low base of 17 to an even lower base of nine, which is getting to kind of North Korea or Syria territory. Still a little bit freer than those countries, but but not much. So China has gotten much more repressive. And I think what's also significant about China is that under President Xi, it's also gotten more aggressive about asserting its influence and power overseas, for instance, trying to play a stronger role in UN bodies like the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva. 
We did a report at Freedom House last year, and we have another report coming out soon, which is very significant, which is looking at the practice of what we called transnational repression, which is where authoritarian countries are targeting their dissidents in the diaspora. And you've seen China uh, as one of the most serious violators of that norm. They are going after Uyghurs in the diaspora, uh, the families of Uyghurs. Uh, they are going after really anyone. They're snatching people and rendering them back to, ch- uh, to China to go to, to, to prison terms. Well, I mean, that goes in a way back to what we were discussing in terms of what Western thinkers got wrong about 1989, um, that the tendency we saw in the world was toward liberalization, trade, globalization, and a kind of a world in which people were targeting sort of material improvement in their lives. And, and, and we thought that that imperative would be shared by political elites in traditional great powers like Russia and China, that they would kind of want to go along for the ride on prosperity. And clearly they had another agenda, right? And they had a kind of imperial restoration agenda that was of interest. And it seems that that's what part of the story is about in China and certainly Russia too, as you pointed out, that there's a connection between these uh, newly empowered strongmen in each country a connection between the crushing of freedom at home and the assertion or reassertion of imperial, um, you know, old imperial claims uh, geopolitically. Um, a- absolutely. Uh, with respect to China, I-, I tend to be a little bit maybe grading on a curve. I- I'm-, I'm a little bit sympathetic. Uh, a lot of people probably got China wrong, but I think 20 years ago, it was not an unreasonable bet to say, look, this is a country that is uh, going to be increasingly integrated with the global community and the global economy. It's going to be sending more of its students to the United States and other countries. And just that kind of integration is going to lead to change uh, within China. Now that did not happen. Well, maybe we were both right and wrong, Mike, in the following sense. These, the, 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 particularly with the case of China, the, the economic integration of the country did, um, create the basis, at least it potentially for a more liberal, uh, freer domestic order in China. And they were afraid of that, the, they being the, uh, communist authorities. Uh, who who understood the potential for change that was developing and proceeded to to crush it and 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 of course one area where I think this whole thing has come together the geopolitical reassertion the uh, approach to um, repression and the assertion of traditional Communist Party power in China is Hong Kong uh, maybe our our listeners don't know this, but that's actually your hometown in some sense, because uh, as the as the child of diplomats, uh, the U.S. Foreign Service, you were born in Hong Kong. What is your uh, what is your reflection on what appears to be a kind of irreversible destruction of that foothold of of, of freedom and the rule of law in Asia? Well, it's sad, it's very sad to me personally, just just on a on a personal level, as you pointed out. 
Uh, I was born in Hong Kong in the early 60s. My dad uh, was a junior member of the Foreign Service at the time, and uh, I've gone back to Hong Kong, not for a while, but I feel a great deal of personal affection. Now, I can't go back now because I personally and Freedom House, my organization, have been sanctioned by the Chinese government, part of kind of the crazy diplomacy uh, or diplomatic tit for tat that when the U.S. government imposed sanctions uh, two years ago on 11 uh, members of the Hong Kong officialdom and some Chinese folks for the, impo- for, for the imposition of the National Security Act, which, which really infringed on civil liberties in, in, in Hong Kong, uh, the Chinese retaliated by, by sanctioning the heads of a number of U.S. human rights organizations and members of Congress. So I can't go back to, to Hong Kong now, but it's a very, look, that's just a, you know, that's, that means nothing compared to the suffering that the people of Hong Kong are now uh, undergoing and, and, and it's getting worse. They, basically, this was supposed to be a separate, uh, you know, under the terms of the handover between, between Great Britain and uh, China in 1997, Hong Kong was supposed to have its own political freedom for for 50 years, its own system of government, and that's been taken away. Well, I have to say it 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 fills me with a certain I know I feel like I'm talking to a celebrity when when I'm talking to someone who is personally sanctioned by by China. Um that I I have to ask you Mike, did did you see that coming or when it happened were you at all were you all worried that, that uh, this might lead somewhere else, or was it more like just, "Wow, this is awesome! I've I've got a badge of honor that I've been I've been personally sanctioned by this repressive government." Well, um, look, it, it is to some extent a badge of honor, but it is a bit disorienting. I actually wrote a piece about this for the Atlantic when it happened, and it's strange. I, I had no idea this was coming. Probably I should have, but I woke up one morning. I get up early and a friend had texted me and said, Hey, you should look at your, uh, you should look at the news. Uh, I think you've been sanctioned by the Chinese government. So I was really, <laughs> I was really surprised and disoriented. I really honestly didn't know what it actually meant. And actually, I, you know, it was a nice thing. Matt Pottinger, who was the deputy national security advisor, uh, at the time, this is the Trump administration. He actually called me later, you know, that day and, and asked how I was doing and asked if he could do anything. I thought it was, I thought it was very kind of him, uh, because, but I think no one really knows what sanctions actually mean. I don't have bank accounts in China. I can't travel there. So, uh, so it's, uh, so it's a little bit probably just mainly the, tr- the travel that I can't do. Well, we're sort of joking about it, but it, in a way, in its own small way, it, it does give you a sense of what, uh, human rights activists deal with around the world, you know, that they can be individually targeted by these governments, as you point out, transnationally. Yes. Um, it, it, it's, it, it is, a, it is a little bit of a, of a, of a, well, it's mostly a symbolic gesture, uh, by China, but I imagine it's something you have to keep in the back of your mind. And it, it probably in the work you do is probably a source of, uh, uh, perspective that you're kind of in the same boat uh, with uh, with the people whose rights you're trying to defend, right? But you have to also remember that those people are. You think about a guy, like one one person I think about now 
a lot is uh, actually your Post colleague, Vladimir Karamurza, who is a columnist for the Post, but a really brave Russian human rights uh, activist. And it's he's an incredible guy. He went back. He lives in Northern Virginia, but he's gone back and forth to Russia over the years. And he went back to Russia around the time of the invasion. And he spoke out and he's now arrested and facing years in prison. And it's those are the kinds of people that really inspire me and who we have got to remember. And by the way, for every one of those people that are like Vladimir Karamurza, there's thousands of others who are having intense persecution. And, 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 you know, as, and as you and I know, Chuck, your editorial page has been a champion of, of many of those people over the years, which is a great credit to that page. Well, and, and it goes without saying those, many of those thousands aren't uh, prominent, aren't names that uh, are known and write op-eds in, in the West and so forth. Uh, and that's part of why I think Freedom House is such a valuable organization, because it's doing whatever it can to not just record, as you do statistically, these trends in, in human rights, but to actually identify and support uh, individual people who, whose rights are threatened and who are fighting back. And so I think it was uh, a great idea to have you on this podcast. It was right up our alley. And Mike, you do very valuable work and you uh, spoke about it so eloquently today. Uh, thanks so much for being with us. Chuck, I really appreciate being here with you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you.